Word of God, 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, and we'll be reading this morning, verse 14 through 22. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, and speak as to wise men. You judge what I said. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bed, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? A thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than He. Are we? Let's ask God to help us understand. O God, whose blessed Son came into the world, that He might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life. Grant that having this hope, we may purify ourselves as He is pure, and that when He comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like Him in His eternal and glorious kingdom, where He lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Without uh, in any way intending to dishonor or trivialize or agitate the suffering and grieving of many of those families who lost loved ones in the terrible massacre that took place last Thursday at Fort Hood U.S. Army Base, uh, there was some news that came out of that horrific event that caught my attention and which illustrates the urgency of the command that you see here in verse 14 when the Apostle Paul commands the Corinthians and the church to flee from idolatry. And the story was of a young man who was pinned down somewhere very near uh, the spraying of bullets by Hassan. Apparently he had a safe place to... uh, to to stay away from the harm of the bullets, but he decided that rather than stay in a safe position, that he would get up and go warn others who were close by so that they uh, they would not be killed by the spray of bullets. And so he got up from his safe location and began to run. As he began to run, he began to shout and to warn people and to draw them away from the place of danger. Well, as he was running, and as he was shouting, and as he was warning, and as bullets were flying past him as he departed from the scene, uh, he didn't notice the fact that one actually struck him in the back as he was running away from the scene. And it wasn't until he'd gotten to a place of safety that he finally discovered that he was bleeding from a gunshot wound. But you see, the reason why he wasn't able to uh, perceive that shot that he had taken the bullet was because he was so focused on the flight from the danger. He was using all of his energy and all of his mental focus uh, to run to avoid danger and to deliver others from position of danger. That's the sense of this word flee here. It's to, it's to flee with all of your might as rapidly as you can with all of the concentration and the focus and the energy that you can possibly muster. The Apostle Paul uses a particular word to underscore the sense of urgency due to the situation of danger. Flee from idolatry. And Paul warns here this Corinthian church that their dabbling in idolatry is spiritually dangerous. And he gives a couple of reasons here in this passage. First of all, because dabbling in idolatry and its worship leads to communion with demons. And secondly, it provokes God's jealousy. Those are the two main points that we're going to examine this morning as we unfold the Apostle Paul's thought here. Before we do that, however, we want to take a moment to get caught up on the context It won't take too long because we've gone over this ground so frequently 
in the recent past, but we do need to sort of piece together a few things here. And we know that uh, what Paul says here in verses 14 through 22 is connected with the preceding uh, thought because of that word therefore at the beginning of verse 14. And so remember that the broad context here the Apostle Paul is dealing with begins back in chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul warns them uh, about eating meat sacrificed to idols within the idol's temple. Uh, See, the Corinthians had posed the question to him. They were asking if it was okay. If it was okay for them to go to the temple. Not because they were worshipping idols, but simply because it was a cultural event. Perhaps it was uh, a family occasion. It was something that they were used to. And so they posed the question, Isn't it okay if we go? Because after all, everybody knows that idols are nothing. Well, the Apostle Paul agreed with them. Yes, it's true the idols are nothing because there's only one God. So there can't be such thing as idols. But there in chapter 8, Paul's immediate response to this was, if you go, however, there is danger for some. There's spiritual danger for some because uh, if they see you partaking of meat sacrificed to idols and they have grown up in a tradition of idolatry and then they partake of the idols, it may just happen that their conscience will be violated and they just might begin to feel like by eating and by drinking in the idol's temple that they are actually engaging in idolatry. And so the Apostle Paul says, because of that possibility, you don't need to be there eating. Well, Paul brings up a number of illustrations from his own life, and then in uh, chapter 10, he brings in a whole series of illustrations from the history of Israel to warn these Corinthians to stay away from the idolatrous temples. Chapter 10 here, he takes... uh, Well, he takes a number of select stories from the early history of Israel to serve as a warning. He talks about how they craved evil things. And the people that craved evil things, and this is very important for us to understand, the people who craved the evil things were the covenant people. They were the people who had been delivered from Egypt. They were the people who had seen uh, and, and gone through and experienced the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, they were the people who had uh, witnessed the theophany, God coming down upon Mount Sinai and causing it to quake and to tremble as He delivered the law to Israel. They had heard the terrible sound of His voice. There were the people who were circumcised. There were the people who had taken the Passover. There were people who had seen God's miracles. There were the people who had been sustained by God's grace, feeding upon the manna in the wilderness day by day. You see, they were God's people. They were covenant people. And yet, Paul says, those people craved evil things. They craved other things than manna. They uh, rebelled against God's leadership. They engaged in idolatrous worship. Those are the craving of the evil things. And, and what the Apostle Paul said is, the result of that is they provoked God to jealousy and their bodies were scattered across the wilderness. Now, the whole point of bringing that up is to say, wake up people of God because as it happened to them because they were resistant to the Word of God, so it can happen to you if you reject God's commands and you continue to willfully and stubbornly go against the teaching to stay away from idols' temples and to eat and to drink in idols' precincts, even if you never intended to engage in idolatry at all. Now, this is a very important issue, and this is just one more part of context that we need to understand these words here. And we probably already covered this, and it's probably something you're well aware of. But the temptation that Paul addresses here for believers to go into an idol's temple and to to break bread there and to eat uh, meat there and to drink wine there was an enormous temptation. It's it's probably hard for us to understand how prevalent idolatry was and just how common it was and just what a, a typical cultural event it was for a person to go to the idol and have dinner, the idol's temple and have dinner. Uh, we have um, one illustration of this pervasive temptation uh, for believers to go into these temple precincts. Not to engage in idolatrous worship, but just to be there. 
as a way to reinforce community. Revelation chapter 2, God calls out, Jesus calls out the church of Thyatira. Uh, saying, uh, you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my servants astray so they commit act of immorality and they eat things sacrificed to idols. You see, Jesus calls out the church of Thyatira because they tolerate Jezebel. Most likely Jezebel is not a woman. Most likely Jezebel stands for and represents a certain segment of the teachers in the church of Thyatira who are saying it's okay for you to go down to the temple and to eat the meat sacrificed to idols and to engage in the rituals and the ceremonies of the, uh, of the idol as long as you do it with your fingers crossed. As long as you go down there just to keep your job, which they had to do because Thyatira was a trade town and, and the entire economy was suspended upon uh, being a part of a trade guild, whether it was wool or whether it was linen or whether it was pottery or whether it was uh, leather or whatever. The whole entire town's uh, economy was based upon having a trade and selling your products to others outside of Thyatira. In order to be a part of that, you had to be a part of a trade guild, and every trade guild had an idol which they worshipped, which was the inspiration and the motivation and the provider for their particular specific skills. And so it was required of people to go to the idol's temple and to worship and to be a part of the ceremonies. And so if you didn't do that, you'd lose your job. And if you didn't do it, you probably lost your family. If you didn't do that, you probably lost your home. If you didn't do it, you were probably considered outside of the social sphere of the people in town. Everybody was doing it. You had to do it. And so uh, the sensible people in the church of Thyatira, the sensible teachers said, Hey, you know what? Just go down there and engage in all this idolatry with your fingers crossed. You know what idol's not real. You're not intending any, uh, any worship to this idol. See, it was a very sensible compromise. Keep your job. Keep your friendships. Keep the money coming in. But just cross your fingers. You don't really mean what you're doing. But what Jesus says there is virtually the same thing that the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians. Jesus said, I'm going to come to you in judgment if you continue to tolerate this. You see, this is the issue here in 1 Corinthians 10. It was the issue that played out across the Mediterranean world at this time. It was a perennial problem that the church faced. How do we interact with our culture, which is so idolatrous and so anti-Christian and anti-God, has its own idols? How do we interact with them? Without sinning, maintaining our relationships, our social standing, was a very difficult issue. And so you can see why the Corinthians put this question to Paul. Because what they're saying is, we're not intending any idolatrous worship here. We're not intending to forsake the Lord. We're just trying to be reasonable. Well, Paul took quite a long time to really answer it. Because remember, we said it starts back in chapter 8. And now when you get to verse 14 of chapter 10, you finally get Paul's first answer. This is Paul's ironclad answer. He said, flee idolatry because participating in the idolatrous ceremonies in the temple makes you a partaker of demons. Let's look at how he sets that up. He sets it up as an argument by analogy. Verse 15, he appeals to them uh, mentally. He appeals to their common sense. He appeals to them as rational thinking people. He says, I speak to wise men, and you judge what I say. I speak to wise men. That is, people who have understanding through insight. He says, evaluate. Reflect upon it. Turn it over. Make sense of what I'm saying. See whether it's logical and coherent. If it is... He's saying, then you need to not only believe what I say, you not only must come to the same conclusion that I've come to, but you must actually follow and pattern the behavior that I'm commanding. Flee idolatry. And so he says, here is my argument. He gives two examples to prepare us for this argument that it's a participation 
in demons. And the first leg of the argument is to say, look, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So first of all, he looks to the Lord's Supper and to this sacrament which has been instituted by Jesus Christ as a means of participating in His flesh and blood. He says, think about it for a second. When you partake of the sacrament, the cup of blessing which we bless, that is clearly a reference to the the blessing of the cup of wine and communion, which is the praying over the elements and consecrating what is common to a special use. He says, when we partake of those things, aren't we partaking of the things that are symbolized? When we drink the cup, aren't we participating in the blood of Christ, which is represented by the wine? When we feed upon the bread, are we not partaking of Christ's body, which is symbolized by the bread? Now, what I want you to see here is that the Apostle Paul takes it for granted that that's exactly what's happening. There is a real communion with the body and blood of Christ in the Supper. That is the assumption. There's a real sharing here, it says. There's a real participation in the body and blood. And for that reason, our confessions make it very clear that when we partake of the bread and the wine and the Supper by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit we actually feed upon the body and blood of Christ. Belgian Confession, Article 35 says, As certainly as we receive and hold this sacrament in our hands and eat and drink the same with our mouths, we also do as certainly receive by faith the true body and blood of Christ our Savior in our souls for the support of our spiritual life. To underscore the fact that it is a real communion with the body and blood of Christ, it goes on to say, what is eaten and what is drunk by us is the proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. And then to explain for us the significance of what all of this means, the confession goes on to say the feast is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates Himself with all of His benefits to us and gives us there to enjoy both Himself and the merits of His suffering and death, nourishing, strengthening, and comforting our poor, comfortless souls by the eating of His flesh and refreshing them by the drinking of His blood. Hmm. It's pretty plain. That there is a real communion with the body and the blood of Christ. We are not memorialists. We do not believe that the Lord's Supper is a simple commemoration. We do not believe that it is a means by which I reflect upon Christ who once died for me. The bread and the wine do not facilitate in my thinking, the opportunity to consider that Jesus once died on the cross. That's the memorialist view. No fellowship with Christ and His body and blood in the Son. But you know, if that's what Paul thought of the sacraments, he could not make the argument that he is making here. He is saying, if you take the bread and the wine, if you participate in the visible external sacraments of the church, you actually participate in the things which they represent. If that is not true, Paul has no rational argument here. So that's the first leg of the argument. The second leg of the argument is found in verse 17. He says, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? In other words, he's thinking about what happened when many sacrifices were offered uh, in in, uh, the temple precincts, uh, in Israel's temple precincts, how that uh, some of the sacrifice was was cut up and put on the altar and was consumed by fire. The remaining portion was distributed among the priest and the worshiper. Now what Paul says is, if you partake, or if the Israelites partake of some of that meat which was not consumed by the fire upon the altar, they are participating in the actual sacrifice which the other portion of the meat 
was offered for as a sacrifice to God. They participated in the altar. They participated in the sacrifice. They participated in all that that meant. There was a real participation in the altar. That's what Paul is saying. Not a memorialist interpretation. They didn't use that as a, as a means to facilitate their thinking upon a sacrifice. It was not a mere commemoration. It was not a personal testimony of their faith that these sacrifices symbolically represented Christ who was to come. No, Paul doesn't say any of that. He says, they are partakers in the altar. There is a real communion. Now, what does all this mean for his argument? The punchline comes in verse 20, but before we get to it, we notice what he says in verse 19. He says, what do I mean then? A thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or an idol is anything? You see, what Paul has done is he has stopped, as he often does, and he steps outside of the argument to say, hmm, I wonder what the average person who's hearing me is thinking. I've just said that partaking of the bread and wine means the partaking of Christ. I've just said that those who uh, partook of the leftover of the sacrament, that, uh, of the sacrifice that was not put on the altar, when they partake of that, uh, that remaining portion, they are partaking of the altar. And he's saying, I know what somebody may be thinking there. Somebody may be thinking, ah, oh, Paul, you're actually saying an idol is something. You may be actually saying here that to sacrifice something to an idol means that that's a real sacrifice and there's a real idol. It seems to be the force of his argument. And someone might think, well, didn't, didn't you just say back in chapter 8 that an idol was nothing? Well, Paul stops and he said, hey, I know where you may be going with that thought, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to suggest now that the, that the sacrifice uh, is really sacrificed to an idol. And I'm not suggesting that there's a real idol. He says it's far worse than that. Look at verse 20. He says, I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. You see, the point of what the Apostle Paul is saying is that here is what they unwittingly do. Here is what they even unintentionally do. They think that they are offering homage and worship and reverence to their particular idol. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, no, what stands behind the idol is the demonic. And when they offer the sacrifice and they participate in the sacrifice... Uh, to the idol, in the idol's temple, he says, they partake of demons. They're not partaking of an idol, because an idol is nothing. He says, here is what's behind the idol, the demonic. And there is a real participation in the demons. Now, just think of this for a moment. Paul has made it clear that there's a real participation in Christ. There's a real participation in the sacrifice. And now he says there is a real participation, not in an idol. But there's a real participation in the demons. That is, that those who sacrifice to those idols, demons, actually now come under the influence of the demonic. They are shaped in the image of the demonic. They are allied to the purpose of the demonic. And they are dishonoring God. He says that's what it is. To go sit in the temple. And to partake of the sacrifices that are offered to the idols. Even if you didn't mean it. Even if you're sitting there the whole time saying. As you carve up your steak. I don't believe in idols. If you partake of it in the temple, he says, you are communing. You are really participating in the demonic. Now, not a memorial. It's not a memorial participation in the demonic. It's not a testimony of their commitment to the demonic. No. They're actually participating in the demonic and coming under its influence. Now, you see, this is Paul's first answer to the whole problem. He says, and I don't want you to become sharers and demons. So, 
plug all of this uh, back into the question that is asked in the beginning of chapter 8. Can we, you know, just with our fingers crossed, and for the sake of, of maintaining community relations with our family and our friends and keeping our social sphere all together now that we've come to Jesus, can't we just go down there and be sensible and accommodate them by sitting in the idol's temple and having a stake with them? And Paul's answer is, if you do, you are participating in demons. Just as if you partake of the bread and the wine of the supper, you actually participate in the body and blood of Christ. You see here why the Apostle Paul says, flee idolatry? It's not just that you may have a temptation to, to dishonor God by worshiping an idol. It's not just that you might remember uh, your former life of idolatry, but you really come under the influence of not idolatry, but the demonic. And so he says, flee. Now there's several applications I want to develop off of this particular argument that the Apostle Paul makes. And the first one is this, is that uh, embedded within this argument here, as it finally reaches its climax in verse 20, uh, we need to be aware of the real danger of the demonic for the Christian. You know, the specific admonition to flee idolatry because of its real associations with the demonic also stands as a general admonition to flee from the demonic. Not just idols. The idols were a part of what facilitated the participation of the demonic. He's saying flee from the demonic as well as from the idols. And you see, uh, the life of the Christian is not, uh, is not so compartmentalized that the demonic cannot begin to influence and to, uh, to tempt the believers to come under its sway. The Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 that we have, uh, we have sworn enemies. He says we have to stand strong against, uh, against rulers and powers and uh, forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and high places and the schemes of Satan. He says there is a real opponent that, uh, that, that is out there trying uh, to draw you under its influence, to distort and twist your affections and your desires, and to lead you away from devotion to Jesus Christ. Now, we think in our sanitized 21st century where we instant message, we have microwaves and TVs, that this whole idea of the demonic is just sort of an interesting metaphor. Nothing real there. Just a way of talking about uh, the dark side of the human spirit. But the Bible doesn't speak of it that way. In fact, the Bible actually presents the very real danger and the very real possibility of the believer coming under the influence of the demonic. You know, the book of Revelation uh, really speaks uh, about this at great length. Uh, basically arguing that what Satan is doing throughout this age is unleashing a tidal wave of demonic influence into this age in the attempt of drowning out believers. He uses false religion. He uses false wisdom. He uses the false church. And he uses the state. And what he is constantly attempting to do is to drown and to suffocate and to draw under the influence of the demonic believers by means of all of these things. False religion, false worship, false churches, false doctrine, false philosophy. You know, in all of those things, the book of Revelation is teaching us we are dealing with the satanic and the demonic and that it's dangerous. Paul believes in the demonic. Not as, in terms of his salvation, but he believes it's there. And he believes it is dangerous. And he believes that Christians ought to have nothing to do with it. They must be very careful and wise and discerning about its influence and its destructiveness. And they must be ready 
to soberly fight against it. So the first thing that I would take away from this is that we better be aware of the very real danger of the demonic that is still there confronting and challenging the Christian. We must flee from it. Extremely careful to avoid any participation in it. And secondly, we must also avoid all idolatry. You see, the command here to flee from idolatry is to flee all kinds of idolatry, not just one kind of idolatry. All idolatry. The Bible speaks of different kinds of idolatry. It talks about the idolatry of false worship of the true God. That's the second commandment. The false worship of the true God. In other words, worshiping God, the true God, in ways that He has not commanded is called idolatry by the Scriptures. Worshiping the true God in ways that He has not commanded is called idolatry by the Scriptures. And it is condemned and it is forbidden to the church. In other words... The only way we are permitted to worship the true God is in the way which He commands in His Word. If we worship any other way than that, it's idolatry. It's condemned. And worse yet, it's a participation in the demonic. You know, some people might say, well, how bad could it be? I'm just going to this church over here. Sure, it's a false church. They don't teach the truth. Get a lot of false doctrine. We have a little false worship. But they're really nice people. They got Bible there. They they talk about Jesus. Uh, And besides, it keeps my family together and uh, keep our relationships up. And there's a little Calvinist group on the side that meets in one of the rooms where we reinforce each other in our understanding of the tulip. How bad could it be? You see, this is generally a mindset that I continue to run into. Is Well, how bad could it be? It's just a little false worship. It's just a little false doctrine. It's just a little false church. There's a lot of really nice people. And it's sensible. It works for me and for my life. That's not what Paul says. He says you better flee idolatry. It's a problem. And the reason why idolatry is a problem is because it causes us to participate in the demonic. That's how bad it is. He says flee idolatry. When you participate in the formal aspects of of religion, whether it's a false religion or false church and false worship, it's the same thing. It's participation in the demonic. The other form of false, uh, the other form of idolatry, obvious here, uh, is the uh, is the is the idolatry of worshiping false gods. Now, the Bible talks about that in different ways. Uh, You can do that through formal religion, or you can do that through just making your own idols. Uh, A range of things come under the theme of idolatry. In fact, Paul even says that our stomach does. People who are gluttonous, he said, they have uh, their belly or their appetite as their God. Greedy people, he says, are idolaters. A lot of different ways you can engage in idolatry false worship of a false god but particularly here what he means in many places in the Bible uh, idolatry is the the false worship of a false god what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 when he says that uh, the wrath of God is coming upon those who are exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures you see uh, idolatry is worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. That's what's in view here in Corinth, eating in a temple where they're worshiping a false god who's represented by creaturely images. And you know, the application is still the same for us today. Just think through all the world's religions and their false worship of false gods. You have 
Buddhism and Hinduism, Taoism, Islam, Mormonism, Native American tribal religions, the list goes on and on. And the fact is all of them are at our doorstep here in Southern California. And the fact of it is, very often, uh, the, the purveyors of, uh, of multiculturalism in our culture today suggest that uh, the best thing for all of us to do so that we can learn how to live together is that we just go participate in a little bit of idolatry. Uh, go, go to seek understanding and broaden our horizons and become more culturally sensitive. Uh, let's all take a field trip down to the false worship today. That way we'll have understanding. Set up a dialogue be able to be better neighbors to each other. Nothing will happen. Nothing bad will happen. That's not what Paul says. He says if you go into the temple and you participate in the worship of a false god with false worship, you are partaking of the demonic whether you intended to or not. You see, it's a very different idea than than the accepting and tolerant and pluralistic way that we're taught to think today by the enlightened, the secular, uh, philosophically enlightened people who run the institutions in our society. We must uh, flee idolatry, Paul says. We must flee that, even that. We understand that we live in a free country and that people are free to worship what they believe and how they believe, and that's fine. But it doesn't mean we should. It doesn't mean that we're safe to participate uh, in what's false. God has commanded us to honor Him and to not worship idols. And Paul says, flee idolatry. It's spiritually dangerous to dabble in it, even if you're doing it as a cultural exercise, attempting to seek to understand others and to become more sensitive. Uh, The third application I would draw off of this passage here, and it's fairly obvious and we've already accented it, but we need to come back to it and accent it again because it's so important for us. And that is... There is a real communion with Christ in the supper. There is a real communion with Christ in the supper. We we, we know that because the entire way Paul sets up his argument here, right? He says, those who participate in the sacrifices offered to the demons participate in the demons. You see, Paul is saying that... To participate in the external sacrament is to participate into the reality that it signifies. Just back up, walk yourself back. Verse 18 says the same thing. You partake of the sacrifice, you partake of the altar. Then you come to verse 16 where he begins his argument. He says, if you partake of the cup of blessing, you partake of the blood. If you partake of the bread, you partake of the body. Now, the only way Paul's argument can work that if you participate in the sacrifices offered to demons, you become sharer in demons. He says you are a real sharer in demons as if there is a real relationship between the external sign and the thing signified. It's not a memorial. It's not a memorial. It's not a testimony of our faith. It's a real participation in Christ. I'm accenting this so, uh, so stringently here this morning because it seems to me that with, in Protestantism and even in Reformed and Presbyterian churches today, I would say that memorialism prevails. It's not even our doctrine, but it prevails. If you went and asked uh, the average person in a typical confessional church if they really actually fed on the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, they'd say, are you kidding me? We're not Roman Catholics. It's a memorial. The bread and the wine facilitate my reflection upon Jesus who died on the cross for my sins. It's not what verse 16 says. He doesn't say that it facilitates a reflection upon the cross. Nor does he say that in verse 20 that the sacrifice offered to demons facilitates my reflection upon the demonic. He says it's a real participation. It's not a memorial. It's a participation. But you see, the problem with this memorialistic idea 
is that there's no real communion with Christ in the Lord's Supper. It leads to a radical mysticism. It leads to a radical mysticism. I was reading a newspaper article the other day by a professor, and this was, uh, I think it was in the USA Today, by a professor who teaches at a, at a prominent evangelical Christian college here on the West Coast. And the, the basic message of the article is that we need to learn how to access the sacred and sacramental holy experiences of God in the common everyday activities of life. And he sort of snidely demeans uh, the instituted sacraments that are observed and, and received in the church as sort of inauthentic and, and stuffy and formalist, formalistic and, and ritualistic. Uh, he talks about them being, uh, uh, them being dispensed, the sacraments being dispensed by religious officials to the non-professionals. And what we really need to do if we really want to access God and have a, a profound experience of the divine and the sacred is that we need to make use of the authentic experiences of God in just the common things of life. Like teaching your little child how to ride a bike. Or in deep one-on-one personal conversation between two people. Or even at picnics in the park. You see, experiencing the sacred in the mundane. As if we can just access God through Jesus Christ wherever we like. We don't, we don't need these sacraments. We don't need the, the preached word. We, we'll just decide where we're going to find God. And the experiences of the divine. And you, when you hear that, you think, well, how ludicrous can that be? I mean, that, that is obviously contrary to the word of God. We're told that we access God in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the word and the sacraments. And the New Testament is abundantly clear about this. So how could this guy come away saying that? And then I thought about it for a second and I thought to myself, well really, that's not all that much different than what your average a Christian is taught to think. How often has it, have you heard it this way that if you really want to get close to God is, is what you need, is you, need to, you need to carve out some quiet time during the day so you can get along with God. Or to set apart time for a prayer walk. Or, or to go on a Christian retreat. And by getting back to nature, you get close to God. And if you have some extra money in your pocket, you go on a Christian cruise. And you enjoy good Bible teaching from your favorite Bible teacher. That, that's how you get close to God. Everybody knows this in evangelicalism. I mean, this guy's really not teaching anything different than is already there in principle. And yet what we need to understand here is that the Word of God tells us very specifically how it is that we access Christ and His grace. It's in the Word and in the sacraments. You see, the blessing for us here this morning, people of God, is that we don't have to walk out of here today to go search for divine experiences. You have it right here. The blessing of, uh, of the truth is that this morning as you come forward and as you receive the bread and the wine, you're receiving Christ. You don't have to go search for Him in some mystical experience outside of you this morning. You don't have to go find Jesus. The, the joy of the Christian Gospel is that Jesus finds you. And He comes down to you right where you are and He preaches the Gospel to you and He offers Himself in the Word and the Sacraments. And He does that for your blessing and for your benefit. And so if you come here this morning struggling with a guilty conscience saying, I really blew it, I sinned against God terribly and I have this gnawing sense of guilt and I can't really come to grips with the fact that God forgave me of what I did, take the bread and the wine. Jesus says, if you take this, that's the same thing as experiencing, again, the sealing and forgiveness upon your heart. If you come here this morning with a desire to have more of the Holy Spirit in control of your life, and yet you just can't seem to figure out how to do that, this is how you do it. You receive Christ in the Word and in the Sacrament, because the more you take of the, uh, of the Sacrament, uh, the Scriptures teach us that we are governed more and more. 
by the Holy Spirit who dwells both in Christ and in us. You see, people of God, if, you're, if you feel like you come here this morning empty, and you, and you feel like your faith is running low and weak, uh, the, the joy of knowing the truth, it, it's not just for a debate, it's not just that we can be cynical and critical. No, the joy of, of, of knowing the truth and believing it is this, is that we understand here this morning that something real happens, something that matters happens when we receive the preached word and the sacrament by faith. Jesus comes and communes with us. It's a profound mystery. And how it all happens, I'll grant you, is far beyond what we can understand or think. I'll give you that for sure. But it's true. The very service that we're in right now tells us that God is gracious to us. That He has not abandoned us. That He's not left us in our weakness and our own resources and our own musing and wondering how can we go find God in the sacred? <laughs> God came to us and gave it to us. That we know it's true because His Word tells us. I don't have to speculate. And so people of God, you were invited to this table this morning with the promise that if you receive the bread and wine by faith, you receive Christ. Lastly and briefly, Paul said if you take... Uh, food offered to idols in the temple, you are partaking of the demonic. Secondly, he says, if you do that, you experience, or you're placing yourself in the way of experiencing the judgment of God. Look at verse 22. He says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? You know, I don't think it's very hard for us to understand this. I think all of us know what jealousy is. Jealousy is the fiercest of human passions. Everyone knows what jealousy is. And what Paul said here is, God is jealous. We learn that from the second commandment. You shall not worship them or serve God by them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, we're told. God is a jealous God. Why is God jealous of us? And the answer is in again the words of the second commandment. I, the Lord your God. He owns us. He owns us. He owns us by creation. He owns us by redemption. He owns us. He has every right to tell us how to live and to regulate our life and to be the focus of our affections and our desire and our life and our service. And what Paul says here is when you disobey God's word and you turn away from what God clearly says here and you say, I'm just going to cross my fingers and do the reasonable and sensible thing and just go down to the idol's temple and reinforce my social sphere. Not not believing an idol is anything. Nobody would do that. He says that very reasonable and sensible action leads you not only to participate in the demonic, but he says, secondly, it leads you to be subject to divine judgment. You say, well, would God really do that? Well, I think that's the entire thing Paul set us up for in verses 1 through 13, right? I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, about the fathers who passed through the cloud and the sea. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. They were drinking the spiritual rock that followed them who was Christ. And God was not well pleased with them. And He laid them low in the wilderness. Why? Because they craved evil things. To want to do different than what God says to do in His Word is to crave evil things. And Paul warns us, if we pursue selfishly our evil cravings, God will be provoked to jealousy. And it's real. 
J.I. Packer, in his uh, outstanding, best-selling book, Knowing God, talks about the jealousy of God. And he explains it like this. He says, the jealousy of God is based upon the goal of the covenant love of God. And the goal of the covenant love of God is that He should always have a people on the earth as long as history lasts. And after that, He should have all of His elect with Him in every age, throughout every age, with Him in glory. And that covenant love, spelled out in redeeming, claiming, keeping, preserving, and maintaining a people for Himself, that covenant love is God's plan. And you know what? If you endanger that plan by refusing to submit to the Word and to flee from idolatry and to resist the influence of the demonic, what Paul says here is that God will exercise the full power of His wrath to protect His plan. He'll exercise the full power of His wrath to protect His plan because He's jealous over His people because He loves them. People of God, this is a profound warning that Paul ends with here. We best not provoke the Lord to jealousy. We are not stronger than He is. He will use every ounce of His power to enforce His will and to secure His plan. And so I leave us this morning as we conclude our message contemplating the jealous fury of divine wrath. And I do believe that Paul very intentionally concludes his response there to this particular issue. And he's going to unfold some more now. What's the opposite side of this in the following verses? But here's, he pretty much concludes the most powerful part of his argument. And he concludes it by leaving us all contemplating the jealousy of divine wrath so that we'll do this. We'll do the very thing that he commands us to in verse 14. Flee from idolatry. Let's pray.